Welcome to Spin It, a business podcast that takes you into the lives of some of today's most influential leaders, entrepreneurs, game changers, athletes, and many more. On Spin It, we take a deep dive into the lives and journeys of our guests to deliver real, unfiltered, and unscripted conversations that will surely inspire hope and promote change. We focus not on their current success, but on the obstacles and challenges that they faced along the way that often doesn't get talked about. How they battled adversity, getting up and being knocked down when all of the odds were stacked against them. Today, I'll be talking to Mayan Gordon, who's a famous TikTok glassblower. She has overcome so much adversity in her life from a gas explosion to being homeless for a few months. She's used her incredible drive and entrepreneur skills to start three of her own companies. Today, she still owns and operates the glassblowing studio, Monkey Boy Art. In addition to posting onto her TikTok channels with close to 2.4 million followers, she is also using her consulting services to help other companies tell their own stories through social media. I can't wait to speak with Mayan today about mental health, overcoming back-to-back challenges, and how she created such a huge following on TikTok. Welcome to our show, Mayan. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. This is going to be very, very exciting. Let's just jump right into it. Let's do it. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. So I know you talk a lot about being an outcast and you talk a lot about really not fitting in. I know that you got along really well with everyone, but that you didn't have a lot of really close, intimate relationships. And I know you talk about it being especially tough during your junior and senior high school year. Let's talk about adversity. Let's talk about your early childhood. Let's talk about you. Like, tell me how it was coming up. Where did you grow up? What was your relationship with like your parents? Like, just walk me through that that foundational piece. Yeah. So I'm the oldest of four children. So my parents had me when they were, you know, 21, 22 years old, which blows my mind being 30 years old now, what that must have been like. My mother was getting her PhD. My father was in, I think, some type of post-grad work. So very, very smart parents, academically driven. I also grew up Orthodox Jewish until I was about 12, 14 years old and then started to not really follow as many of the rules around Orthodox Judaism. And I just thought that, you know, my small little world was the whole world. And I think a lot of a lot of us grow up that way and then realize later on that there's so much more out there. But that's a really, I'd say, core part of my experience as a human being so far, which has helped me to realize that we don't know what we don't know until we learn that we don't know it, right? And so I would say it was relatively lonely because I didn't have siblings that were necessarily close in age to me. My brother, who was the next out of four, was three years younger than me. But him being a boy, I think we just didn't have the same, you know, things that we were interested in to connect over. And then there was also a dynamic of my parents because they were still in school and working, being away from us a lot, right? I had to go to preschool, before school, not preschool, the the age group, but kind of like pre- Yeah, before, before care. Started, like before then, care, yeah. yeah. Post-school, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, like daycare, essentially. And it always made me really want to spend more time with my parents. I think no matter who you are, we all grew up with this longing to be loved by our parents and, and make our parents happy and, and get that that quality time with them. And I felt that missing a lot growing up. And I think it came out in me being um, either like mean or competitive to my brother or like, you know, we were fighting over that attention versus kind of relating to each other around certain activities. And that I think translated into how I was making friends or not making friends in school was that just having that competitive nature oftentimes really isn't conducive to building a relationship where both both sides are happy and getting along. 
And that's something that I think applies directly into, into business as well, where, you know, certain industries seem to be much more competitive, certain are, are much more collaborative, but that collaboration lends so much to not just success in general, but happiness in terms of the relationships that you're forming. So, you know, was really academically focused all throughout high school, just growing up. I was very good at math and very good at science. And I think that's something you can cling to as a child growing up. And certainly I, I clung to that a lot. So I, you know, did anything academically that would please adults because that was kind of the name of the game is how can I get that praise from adults because my parents aren't always around to, you know, pay attention to me. And when, of course, after they did come home from work, they were really tired from working all day and doing whatever things, you know, in the morning they did to get ready. So for me, it was kind of a, a lonely, I would say, growing up. And that was the core of my my suffering in my junior and senior years was just feeling so lonely. And there were all these amazing things that were happening that I didn't feel a part of. And I so badly wanted to be a part of something, but at the same time had no awareness around really what I was going through and understanding how to process it. And so it came, came out in me trying to process in all of these really negative ways that were not not helpful or necessarily healthy. Wow, that's amazing. So walk me through kind of your junior and senior year of high school. So first of all, just behaviorally, those are so difficult. Social, emotionally, those are really tough times because you already feel out of sorts. You are, even with friends, even with great friends, even with, you know, really present parents, you already kind of feel edgy and like crawling in your skin. But then to not have the adult love and support and not saying they didn't love you and support you, but something that you weren't able to feel or receive. What are some of the behaviors that happened for you in high school? Yeah. So a lot of negative behaviors. Basketball was kind of my world at that time. I was in, I think it was junior year. I made the varsity basketball team and our girls basketball team was really, really good. We went to state, I think all four years that I was in high school and they'd won a bunch of championships, you know, years prior. And we had this incredible coach. So I had a lot of my emotions tied to basketball. And when I wasn't getting playtime that I wanted, when I wasn't performing the way or progressing the way in the sport that I wanted to, I really didn't know how to process that. Like, I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know how to even talk about that feeling or what I was going through. And so it turned into just all of this frustration, right, on top of the loneliness. And I think loneliness and frustration are not good things to feel in conjunction with each other. And so I started shoplifting was one of the, the negative behaviors that came out of that. And when I think back to, like, why did I do that, it's really hard for me to answer that. One, because I'm not in the same emotional state. Like, I can remember kind of what it felt like, but I don't think I'll ever really be able to experience that again mm -hmm. because so just so much was different. And like you said, even some of it was hormonal or like what you go through as you're going through puberty and like growing up, right? There's all of these chemical factors even within your own body that Absolutely. are going to influence Absolutely. how you feel. But I remember being very bored. I think that's where the center of my unhappiness was. So there was this like deep layer of loneliness. And on top of that, I was just really disinterested in almost everything besides basketball. And I think, you know, any sport has a natural ability to grab our full attention, right? You have to be paying this like very high level, deep level of attention when you play a sport that doesn't really engage in a lot of other activities. And certainly I wasn't engaging that way in, in class because it was kind of easy enough for me to digest and get where I didn't really have to focus super hard to learn any of the concepts. 
And so shoplifting was this thing where it was one exciting, right? When you're when you're young, you kind of want to do some things that are uh, not in accordance with the rules. And I'd been kind of following the rules my whole life and wanted to do something kind of to break those rules, but also was a way for me to create all these new scenarios and dialogues in my head that would make it more captivating and interesting. That is, that's amazing. I'm just looking at my notes and I'm, I'm looking at, you went to Lakeside. Tell us about Lakeside. I, I, I knew that you went to a prestigious school and I knew there was amazing alum there and I knew it was a very rigorous schedule, but I didn't know you went to Lakeside. So tell me about that and who are some of the people that have gone there? Yeah. So Lakeside is, I would say, a very privileged school. Like if you talk about the word privilege, ta-da, like <laughs> that is classic, I would say, privilege. And it's a private school in Seattle, Washington. It's where Bill Gates and Paul Allen and many, many other highly, highly accomplished alumni who have either broken barriers or invented things or built these ginormous companies have gone to. And because of that, they get, you know, some pretty incredible donations from those alumni and they have an amazing endowment. So the buildings, it's like a mini college campus. Like there's a science building and a history building and a gym and they're all separated by beautiful grass fields and walkways. And everyone, when I started high school was kind of the timeline of the internet becoming more of a thing that everyone was starting to use. And so we were one of the first grades where the entire school was on a laptop system. And it was this like exciting, revolutionary new thing. Like every single person at this school, every student has a laptop and you do your homework and you submit your homework through the laptop and through email. And this was like totally ahead of its time. Like no other schools were doing this. Other schools barely had, you know, computer lab rooms that with the the big old Macintoshes. And that was really exciting to me. Really gave me an area of interest to at least dive into somewhat. So I'd say the internet has always really captivated me and my attention. I've been really fascinated with it. But at the same time, early on, it was deemed as this dangerous place that young girls should not be. And my mother and I think lots of other adults had really, really big stranger danger and, you know, worries about children being abducted or lured from like sexual predators online. All of this really created this sense of an environment where we were being very, very encouraged and supported, but from the bottom, but then from the top, there was all this pressure to get certain grades, to perform in a certain way, to be doing extracurricular activities. There was even pressure around being a part of social events or social things, which if you're already having a hard time, with social stuff just makes it that much more uncomfortable and difficult. Like, I don't think anyone needs social pressure. We have internal social pressure from our own brain that says, hey, you need to be a part of the tribe to survive, right? That kind of primordial evolutionary mechanism in our in our brain already puts pressure on us that isn't necessarily helpful to us, to our performance. And so to have that extra layer and then all of these other pressure elements, I think put me in a position that was even more emotional, right? Like if you take emotions and you put them in a pressure cooker, they're not going to be better. They're going to be more volatile. And so I think that's generally what happened is I had all of these little, let's call them issues or difficulties processing certain emotions and then put them all in a pressure cooker. And even though that pressure cooker was good in certain capacities. It also had these other consequences that for me resulted in, in addition to, to shoplifting, I ended up cutting for a short period. And, and it really was something where I just didn't know how to deal with how I was feeling. 
And I'd heard of people doing that. And I said, let me try that out and see what that's all about. And it was something where it really helped me focus all of the emotion into a particular like point. Because I think if I had to describe, how did I feel you know, to people in these moments? We have these words like overwhelmed, lonely, pressured, stressed, that I think all can feel many different ways. And the way that it felt to me all combined at that time was I didn't know where the emotion even was, right? Like we feel these emotions in our body in certain places, like heartache, right? Like we call it that because it kind of, it hurts right in here. Or sometimes we feel it in our stomach, butterflies. And this was something that was so overwhelming that I couldn't pinpoint where it was coming from physically. And so the cutting gave me a place to go, that's where the pain is. And it was something I did for a very short time. And then we actually had our school counselor was taking Spanish class in the class that I was taking as well. She was auditing the class and she noticed that, that I had some cuts and so pulled me in and got the parents involved. And that was really difficult because then it just felt like I had let everyone down and I failed everyone. And I was a disappointment even more than I might've felt. I already was a, a disappointment in certain capacities. And so it was something really made the whole junior and and senior year for me not very much fun to get through, but was so valuable to now as an adult. And I went through something called dialectical behavioral therapy, which is DBT therapy. And to me, as someone who loves science, I was like, this is fascinating. It was the first time ever I learned how our body connected to our brain. And that concept has served me the rest of my life. Because once you learn certain things, you can't unlearn them And they apply universally in every scenario. And the truth is that our body is so connected to our our brain and our emotions. You said three things, and I want to touch on each one of them. So, and and we're going to come back to your leadership qualities. We're going to come back to how you lead your companies and what's happened for you, okay? But you are so right, okay? So we talk about connection, and we talk about empathy, and we talk about self-awareness. We talk about where you feel the pain, but but... You are so correct when you say you sometimes you can't pinpoint it. Like you just know you're off. You know that it's wrong. You know that it's not tracking in the right direction, but you can't put your finger on it. And that for me is so interesting because a lot of times people that are not um, hugely aware or have really developed EQ, if you will, okay, they think of it as as theatrical or checked out or unemotional or like you said, overwhelmed. And it's actually very interesting what you say because a lot of times clients will come to me and they'll go, I'm so overwhelmed. And I'm like, awesome. Talk to me about overwhelmed, what that means for you. Because your experience of overwhelm and somebody else's experience of overwhelm is completely different. And so as as coaches or consultants, we immediately jump in to like, let's solution the overwhelm. But we don't even know what that means. What is that experience for that person? So not having – so my, my background is psychology – but also to not knowing until maybe, I don't know, 10 years or 12 years ago where I started really paying attention to this cutting effect, okay? Like for me, man, I was I was really like, why would somebody sit there and like pay such detailed attention to, you know, what they were doing? And and I mean, it hurts. They know it hurts. It doesn't look good. Like it, it was so overwhelming for me to actually think about. And when they sat down and and explained that they have no idea where this bad, horrible, intense, deep, horrific feeling is coming from. And this helps it be like right here so they can focus and deal with it. That was crazy. Yeah. That was crazy for me. The, can I add something Yeah, to please. That? Absolutely. So 
I think you're bringing up another point, which is I think anytime, and there's lots of different people and specialists who talk about this, anytime we have part of our emotions in opposite places, we have that, right, like cognitive dissonance, it's almost unbearable to us as human beings. And I think one of the things that happens when you get to a certain point of, let's just continue using the word overwhelm, is you naturally start to numb, as you were kind of talking about your emotions, but you're still feeling at the same time very, very deeply these emotions. And you create this cognitive dissonance of, I feel such a deep sense of overwhelm, but also I feel nothing at all at the same time. It literally makes no sense. Like, how can you feel everything and nothing? Well, and then to add one more thing to that, to add to jump onto that further, when we meet with when we meet, so when I'm meeting with clients or when I'm meeting with people, they're explaining maybe their child or their adolescent or maybe a team member that they're trying to get help from. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. You have it all wrong. They're smiling. They're laughing. They're joking. They don't understand that these are just kind of almost going through the motion, if you will. These are what they're picking up from social cues if they're able to even not numb out that badly. But it's it's not anything that they're really feeling because they have no idea what they're feeling except for pain or hurt or disconnect or like you said, the dissidence is so massively huge. And quite frankly, and I'm going to go out and say this, a lot of therapists, unless you're specifically trained in this area, I almost feel don't do the best service that they possibly can. And that for me has been hard to watch. I just find it's really interesting for people. It's really important. For, yeah. Exactly. For listeners to know that there is a way out of this. There is a way out. And you being from a privileged background and you having extraordinary, amazing parents who are highly educated and you having a privileged life didn't necessarily take away any of the pain. And as you said, it maybe even made it worse because of the expectations that were put upon you and then the pressure cooker. So I think it's just really important. And I think when I was first dealing with this, like I said, a few years ago, I remember the therapist who was a very amazing, amazing man. So amazing. He said, let's not stop her from cutting yet. And I remember being like, what? Like that was so counterintuitive. Like this little girl is 15 years old and she's like, and he's like, no, no, no. He's like, we could go into a suicidal ideation because she doesn't know where else to put it. And it's so intense. And I remember working through this process with the family. And I remember just being like, can okay, there's blood. Mayan, I'm telling you, I'm sitting here going, oh my God, that's her left arm and she's going to get through this and it's her left hand. That's going to be in her pictures. And like, I remember feeling all of this stuff and he was completely correct. The minute they moved her to another area and they stopped her from cutting, 10 more problems arose that were even more difficult to deal with. Yeah. The cutting is like the most reasonable way that that person could think of. And in fact, I think there's a big misconception a lot of times that cutting is a suicidal activity. And most of the time it's the opposite because you're having maybe potentially suicidal thoughts in your head to solve some of these emotional problems of if I killed myself, would people care then? And there's this like weird thing your brain does with going, maybe then I'll feel, I mean, no, you'll be dead. You won't feel anything. But that's the the thought is like, what can I do to get people to really like me and to really care about me? What can you do to and, feel the love? The love that you're missing, yeah. the big giant void, that hole in your heart, that hole in your soul. What can I do to get that filled back up? And you're right. You don't ever go, yeah, but I wouldn't be here to fill it. Like it doesn't yeah. come into your brain. Yeah, it's very, it's a, your brain operates when you're at that emotional level in a very non-logical way because your brain is either processing things through the amygdala, which I believe is the 
Is that the one that's the more emotional yes. one? There's two different yes. parts. Yeah. yeah. Or it's processing through the the prefrontal cortex, which I believe is the more logical side. So when you're in that emotional state, you're not thinking things that make a whole lot of sense. So that experience, so first of all, thank you so much for sharing such a deeply, deeply personal story with me. I, I really can't tell you how much I appreciate that. And I definitely want to let our listeners know that we are going to put resources um, on the bottom of the show notes so people can understand, you know, where to reach out. And, and actually, you know what, Mayan, let's cover that really quick. If, if somebody's going through this, what are some ways that you utilized? What are some things that either you looked up or some resources that were great for you? And let's just add those in. Yeah, I think, you know, early on, I was kind of forced into resources. I really wanted to kind of seclude and just, you know, curl into a box and, and die in there. But the internet is a great place to just search for hotlines or helplines. There's some really great free resources where you can either call or if you don't feel comfortable calling, there's text helplines. But I think just talking to someone and letting them know how you're feeling and getting someone who is caring about that you can feel and sense that that level of caring and support is a great place to start. You can also, I would say, if you're in school, if you're you know, listening to this and you go to school, reaching out to someone who either if your school has a school counselor or literally just anyone, you could start by you know, just telling a teacher, hey, I'm going through a really hard time right now. Is there someone at school I can talk to? You don't have to share any details, but just say, hey, does the school have someone who can help? I'm going through a hard time and I'm not sure who to talk to about that. I also think too, Mayan, that, that a lot of times people don't, they don't know how to articulate what they're feeling, so they don't ask for help. So they don't know how to say, hey, I need help with. And that's one of the things that we've been working with a lot for our company in reaching out and just some of the different organizations that we work with, okay? And some of it is just really just raising your hand and going, hey, I'm not okay. And I may not be able to exactly pinpoint it or I may not be able to have a full conversation or I can't maybe articulate right now, but I'm not okay. So really getting to a psychologically safe place and having emotional bravery over asking for help. There are so many people that want to help. Nobody else wants to see another, you know, ridiculous suicide of this young, beautiful life that felt so overwhelmed, but wasn't really sure how to even reach out and just say, can you see me? Can you hear me? I don't really know what I'm going through right now. And I really need some help. It doesn't matter what you say, just raise your hand and ask for help. And on the other side, I think there's a way that people who are listening who aren't going through something can help as well. And that's if you see someone and they look like they're having a bad day, ask them if they're okay and then ask them again two or three more times if their answer doesn't match how you're sensing they feel. Like we're all gifted with this beautiful ability to sense other human beings' emotions and especially if you know someone really well and you sense them being off, ask them and then tell them creating safety is 100% the name of the game. So if you really want to help someone and you sense something's off, say, are you okay? Because I want you to know there's nothing you could tell me that would make me stop being your friend. Whatever it is, I don't care what you say. I want you to know that I'm here for you. And if you don't want to talk right now, that's okay. But I felt it was really important to let you know that because I'm feeling something different about you. And I think that that's so incredibly important because people are like, hey, how did I know? How did I know? Well, one of the things that we talk about a lot, Mayan, is slowing down, taking the phone out of your hand, and actually looking at somebody. You can tell. I have a global team. If I am on the phone and I'm looking at somebody, I can tell. Now, I may not have a couple things. 
first of all, it may not need to be addressed right there in front of a lot of different people. Okay. Number two, I may not have the exact moment to call them and look at them, you know, engage with them, but I can send a text and go, Hey, do you have five minutes? Can I talk to you at this time? Letting them know that you see them and that you know something's not okay. Just like you said, there's nothing that they could tell you that's going to create any sort of wedge or make you think or feel any differently. And so I'm here and we are going to have this conversation again, okay? Like, you know, really like being intentional with your words and with your emotions and with your engagement. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think when you're in that emotional space, there is a lot of fear. Yes. And it gets attached to almost every area of your life and every experience that you're going through because when you start with an unknown, everything else becomes an unknown as well. Right. So I want to get into you as a leader, but how did you get through this? Like what finally clicked for you to where you're like, okay, enough, no more. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to participate in this ridiculousness. I'm going to be my biggest advocate. What happened? Yeah, man, I don't think it was this great story of this thing happened and boom, I completely changed. It's been, I would say, a, you know, ten, eight to 10 year process of me peeling back layers of the shell or the wall or the mask, whatever I'd built to protect myself as a child growing up, I then had to start removing from who I was, right? Because as we're growing up, and a lot of us do this into adulthood as well, but as, especially as we're growing up as, ch as children, our brain does these things that express themselves in actions or behaviors and the complete design of that action or behavior is to protect you against something that you were feeling. Because it's a habit and a behavior, we'll carry it through literally our entire life until we address it and examine it and say, why is it that I do things this way or react this way, right? And then tie it back to, oh, man, it's because of this one experience or this pattern of experiences that I had as a child. So for me, that first peeling back and that first thing that allowed me to even think about examining what I'd gone through as a child was being in a gas explosion in my rental home. And the real reason that this was a hugely pivotal moment in terms of me transitioning to the person that I am today, which is almost the opposite in a lot of ways from, from who I was growing up, was that that gas explosion was largely something I could have prevented. Me or my boyfriend at the time, husband now, could have prevented. And so we were we were like, ooh, this is fun. You know, we were young, experimenting with things, and we were doing it outside our house, but we would leave our door open, and a draft would just sweep the butane in because I didn't realize, I thought gas, gas floats away. Some gases are heavier than air, and so they sink and just sit there until some type of wind does something with the gas. So over the course of months, probably, you know, over time, this layer of butane built up in our rental house. And then one day we were cooking at the stove and this super fast explosion happened. And it was so fast and unexpected. We didn't really know what had happened at first. It was just a loud noise, a concussive blast. And we're now standing several feet from where we were standing and very confused. And I couldn't see anything right away because my contact, I wear contacts and they'd gotten like instant cinch. It's like an instant burning. And so I ran to the bathroom. First thought was like, oh my God, am I blind? Like what's up with my eyes? Flipped out my contacts, realized like my contacts had protected my eyes and that my face was okay. Now I can't see very well at this point because I have very, very nearsighted vision. And so I then am like, 
trying to calm down a little bit, slow the breathing down, right? Because your heart goes from 40 to 250 like that. And then I start feeling pain and I start feeling pain in my legs. So I look down and I can see even with my contacts out that my legs are burned. And it's kind of that pink mushy color that your your skin will turn if you scrape it really bad or if, if you burn it really bad. And then I poked my head out of the bathroom because I was in the bathroom where I flipped out my contacts. And I see my husband kind of just screaming and waving his limbs because he was standing in front of me from where the explosion had its epicenter. And so he was much more covered in burns than I was. Went into the bathroom, got into the shower. All that to say, we ended up being fine, like we recovered. But that really caused me to look and go, Mayan, you are not as smart as you think you are. Because I thought I was really smart. I thought I'd figured out everything in life. And I was smarter than all these adults who told me what they thought was best for me. And really, that was a big theme of everyone going, here's the best path for you. And then me going through this time period, realizing they don't know what's best for me. I'm the only one who knows what's best for me. And if I'm going on this path they say I should be going on and I'm miserable, then that's not the best path for me because no amount of success is worth being miserable for. So I thought I'd figured it out. I thought this was like a secret that, you know, adults weren't telling children because they were unhappy (laughs) and they were stuck in their ways, right? I love that. My children feel the exact same way. You made this huge error in judgment, clearly you have a lot to learn and there's a lot you don't know. And that kind of started the process for me. That's crazy. Give me details. Okay. So you guys, you realize you're burned. He's more badly burned than you are. Do you go to the hospital? Yeah. I called 911 right away when the the fire truck is almost always the first to yeah. arrive on the scene. So when the fire truck got there, I could kind of hear the the siren. So we were both completely naked when this happened. Oh, okay. Uh, because, you know, young, naked, in love. That was the life, right? And so I just ran outside naked, like in the middle of the day. I went, come in here, come help us. They came in, gave us some morphine shots, which are amazing, and then rushed us to the hospital. So Ben went to the hospital first because he had much more burns. He ended up in the ICU for about a week and then stayed about another half a week to a week in the the less urgent kind of area recovering. Then we went back home and there was still a lot of recovery because when you get burned severely on your legs, when you stand up at all or walk, it's like needles oh, just yeah. like shooting. And just the, the overall like for infection and just for like everything else, you have to be so, so, so incredibly careful and you're in pain. I mean, your skin is gone. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It's, it's no fun. Yeah. So there was a month to two months of just recovery where that was all we were focused on. I wasn't literally thinking about anything else other than physically getting better and emotionally surviving through that period. Because it was another like, I went from being on top of the world emotionally, like thought I'd figured it out, at least in the emotions that I could detect and was aware of. I think inside, deep, deep inside, I was still the same amount of unhappy as I was before. But I built all these layers to distract me from that deeper unhappiness. And so those layers literally were exploded away. And I said, okay, how do I really feel? (laughs) If we're going to go back to feeling bad again, let's actually deal with it this time. So I think what happened for me was I built up all of these mechanisms for coping to where I didn't have to pay attention to the problems that were deep inside anymore, to the point where I'd convinced myself they no longer existed. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's distracting. Here's what you do. You distract or you disassociate. 
So in all of yep. our leadership and all of our consulting for leadership and you maybe get detached feelings or you get detached emotions or you get you're apathetic or you're not connected or you don't create community or whatever those things are, it's always a deeper wound of distracting or disassociating to not have to deal with something real and usually very deep. Usually it's very deep. It's not something you can just quickly recall. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But the the explosion emotionally brought me back to that place. Yeah. And so I just made, I don't know what caused me to make a different decision around how I was going to address it and deal with it. But I said, okay, let's let's fix the problem this time instead of, and maybe I think it was because I actually believe that the problem could be fixed versus when you're growing up, I think a lot of the time you feel like, I'm broken. Like, this is just my life is I have to deal with these things that I can't change. And throughout that transition from dropping out of college to, you know, freelancing full time and experiencing all these fun things, I went, oh, actually, some of the things that I learned growing up aren't true. So maybe this thing that I believed about not being able to change the things I don't like about me, maybe that's not true either. Maybe I actually can change who I am and therefore how I feel about myself. So I love that. And I want to touch on that for just a second because you hit on something today. We were doing a clubhouse space on executive presence. And one of the things you just brought up, which is limiting beliefs. And they said, Stephanie, how do you deal with limiting beliefs? And I said, oh, thank you for asking that question. It's really fun to do with millennials. It's really fun because they have all of these things that they're thinking and they're feeling and, and it's and it's gospel. I mean, it is it is this is how it is. Okay. And it's actually really interesting because I'll sit down with them and I do it half joking, you know, because you want to recreate rapport and you want somebody to like, you know, have a conversation. It's hard to talk about this stuff. It's hard. And it's actually really interesting because I'll say, tell me your limiting beliefs and just like you just did. And they'll go, well, you know, this is what I know to be true. And this is how who I am. And how do you know that? Because this person said so. And how do you know that? Well, because this is what happened. Or And you have all of these things, Okay. And then I'm like, great. And I'm writing them down. And they're like, oh, wow, she's really taking me seriously. She totally gets it. And I was like, yeah, keep going. Tell me more. Keep going. And then we get there and you can see the sense of relief come over them like it's off of their chest. Okay. And then I go, okay, so what's the difference between a fact and what's the difference between an opinion? And we'll go through kind of fact and opinion and they, they're still completely engaged. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> now in order to have a fact, what do you have to have? You have to have evidence, data around it. And so I said, so let's go through your evidence. And I'll start going through their evidence. And they're like, I'm like, okay, so this person, like, why was this person's word? And they're like, well, they were the head of school or they were the administrator or they were the, you know, and so I'd be like, oh, okay, so a person of authority. And they're like, yeah, I go, okay, let's go through the evidence. And I would literally one by one by one, essentially throw their entire limiting beliefs that it was just something that they, it was a story that they had told themselves or worse, somebody else had told them that they had adopted. And once you go through that, once you go through, and by the way, and tell me your experience, that's also equally as scary because then you're like, who the hell am I? You know, after all of these things have been told, this is who I am and this is what I stand for and this is me. And then you're like, oh gosh, all 80% of that went out the window. It's very unsettling. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Until you start becoming the the magician in your own world exactly. and you realize that it is how you want it to be and how you act towards creating your life to be. And the more you do that, the more it becomes true. Um, and so it's kind of a beautiful snowball of how you can build yourself up and to give anyone encouragement who's listening to this, it only takes one right step in the right direction 
And then all of the following steps are also in the right direction. And so it's not this massive thing that you have to figure out how to do. You just have to take one step and that next step leads to the next step. And then you look back after a year and you're like, holy cow, how am I a different person now? And I'm so glad that you said that because, you know, I talk about this, like, I, I really I say this stuff all the time and it's like got, kind of gotten cliche a little bit, but, you know, people see this massive chunk and I have to make all of these changes and it's like, no, the most important thing is, is starting right now and these tiny little incremental shifts, these tiny, these small pivots and they're like, yeah, but what is small pivots going to do? And we actually produced all this documentation about, you know, if, if the Titanic would have made a three-degree change, three degrees, they wouldn't have hit the iceberg. So imagine what that would have been. So just think about that little tiny or, you know, if you want to look at a flight pattern, take a look at a flight pattern and go, gosh, if I just change that one and a half percent, you'd end up in another country. So think about these small intentional changes every single solitary day in your life and what that can mean for you in, in three months or six months or a year. So I'm so happy you brought that up. One last question in this area, and then we're going to go to TikTok and your companies and how this entire, I mean, we don't even need to talk about obstacles and opportunities because I feel like that's been like your life. Um, I feel like yes. that's well covered. <laughs> what did your parents say? Walk me through this conversation of my butane just exploded and Ben's in ICU and I'm heading over. Like, what happened? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think I called my dad and told him because I was scared to talk to my mom. <laughs> Happens. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think I said, hey, we're in the hospital because we were in an explosion. We're okay. You know, you, you always leave. We're okay. Yeah. But I have something to tell you. And I don't remember if or what my dad said. So Again, one of the things we do, right, when we have these really traumatic experiences is we'll create memory blocks after the fact, or I think equally that had an impact is I was on a lot of morphine. And so my ability to retain memories at that time might have been compromised a little bit. But he said something along the lines of, okay, we'll go, you know, we'll see you at the hospital. Like we're going to come to the hospital and make sure that you're okay. And they showed up and I just felt very, very, you know, ashamed. I dropped out of college already, which was a disappointment. I was dating a boy that they were not a huge fan of at the time. That was a disappointment. Yeah. I was. You're, you're batting you know, a thousand not, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was not. <laughs> you're doing I great. I high up on, <laughs> on the favor list. So it was just, I would say, you know, it's good to feel that my parents cared enough to come visit, but it also was very uncomfortable that they were there because I felt all of those negative emotions with them being around. So after that, went back to the rental house that we had and kind of just stayed away, I think, from contact with my parents. I don't remember much about our communication at that time. I knew they were very disappointed. There was no talking that through. And I think part of that was I didn't make any effort to say, hey, guys, I know that I really have made you guys not very happy or I've contributed to you guys having this level of disappointment. I'd like to talk about it and see if we can resolve this to some degree. So I didn't do that, but also they didn't do that on their side either of, hey, it seems like you're making some not great decisions. We still really love you and care about you. Let's talk about this to see if we can help you out. And so I think because of that, I felt like I'm not going to try and then get shut down because I already felt like not accepted or not like I was living up to those expectations. And there had been times in the past where I'd said, hey, mom, I want to talk to you about this. And I'd been 
either shamed or guilted or just made to feel like, well, that was a total mistake for me to bring this up even at all. I guess the things I think optimistically about us being able to to resolve things aren't true, right? And it creates more of those limiting beliefs of, well, my parents just aren't there for me. And in reality, that's not true at all. They're totally there for me and they would have been there for me if I'd known how to approach it. While we're talking about this, I have a daughter who's 26 and there are things where she holds me to a certain standard of how I'm supposed to respond. So she appreciates whenever she comes to me with information that I'm not judgy or that I, you know, help her walk her through things. And by the way, if I don't, if, I, if I'm silent, I'm like, oh, how did that work out? Then she's really mad. And I'm like, I'm really confused here. Do you want me to show up or not show up? Like, <laughs> what's going on? So one of the things that I felt really interesting and just to interject your your to your story is whenever our children feel what is appropriate. So they're like, you know, I felt shamed by my mother. I felt like it wasn't like an open conversation. But then I I kind of, and, and by the way, I'm very clear on parental effect and non-parental effect. Like I'm very clear, okay? I've never parentified my kids. In fact, I probably do go the opposite. You know, they, they do ask me my opinion and they're adults. Kind of where I'm going with this is, is that you felt shamed and possibly disconnected and embarrassed and like you were a disappointment, okay? What's a better way to have another conversation? So for example, I know that recently I had a client whose daughter was very, very disappointed in him. And she was very open and very honest. She was just like, you are old school. You are, I mean, like she was upset. And this was on appropriate use of, and I'm going to, I'm probably going to mess this up. So feel free to jump in and correct me. Okay. But appropriate use of like pronouns, like you didn't ask her, her pronouns and he has zero affiliation. He doesn't care what, what gender or what flu, he doesn't even know about it. So it doesn't matter to him. So he had no opinion, but he answered her very flip. He basically said, and I don't really care. It doesn't matter. Like nobody's asking me about he or they, or like he doesn't care. And so he was very dismissive and she was extremely upset because this was her major in college and she really wanted to go advocate and they didn't talk for almost nine months because she said things like super close-minded, doesn't know we're living in the 21st century, you know, has no idea what's going on around him. That was her experience. She was very vocal and she was extremely adamant about what a disappointment and an embarrassment her father was, who, by the way, was footing the entire bill for college, was taking care of like all of, you know what I'm saying? So talk to me about that. We always hear about parents possibly shaming their kids, but what about parents saying my parents just don't kind of, you know, hit the mark. Yeah. You know, this is something I think a lot about because I don't have kids yet, but I want to have a similar size family, I think, to the one I grew up in. You know, three to six kids sounds great to me. We'll know once I have the first one how I really feel. Don't let the first one fool you. The first one is the one that gets you to have all the other ones. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Things that I remember about growing up and about being in a family is one those hormones are like, we have no idea how to control. Like literally I can remember back to when I was 15, 16 years old and there would be these times and I just would get really angry. (laughs) I couldn't tell you why, like definitely part of it was, I was probably hungry, but sometimes we just get these like overwhelming emotions, especially in the anger or frustration department. And we've never been taught what to do about that. And so it comes out in our voice and in what we're saying and we think we're right because we've learned throughout our life to that our emotions validate our experience and our decisions, right? And it's, if I feel this angry, you must have done something to upset me. Like, 
Because we're not taught, hey, by the way, when you're growing up, sometimes you're going to feel things that aren't attached to something that just happened to you externally. It's completely internal. And, and we're taught everything that happens inside is connected to something outside. And so we go, well, if I'm really angry, it, I have to pick a place where that came from. And we're not taught to pick in inside. So clearly you are at fault, mom or dad. So understanding that dynamic and then being able to address it or just being aware of it can help. Maybe sometimes there isn't much you can really do about it other than to, to have a conversation. It's not going to necessarily change how your, your child's behaving, but at least you can bring it up. I would say another factor, though, is in that what we've been taught and what we haven't been taught. So none of us are taught in school about how to have accountability conversations. And none of us are taught before we're parents how to have accountability conversations unless we went through some type of specific training or had some type of specific experience that brought our awareness to what is the successful way to approach talking about accountability, which is really what you're talking about. Is the dad accountable for making the daughter or contributing to the daughter feeling this particular way? And if so, how is that addressed, right? And so one of the things that I've been studying over the past, you know, five, six years is what is the structure to having those types of conversations that are difficult to have because they're emotional inherently, where there's proven success in studies. And a great book for people who are interested in this is Crucial Accountability and the information in this book, they've spent, they did like 20, 30 year research studies to, to find out this information. So we have access to incredible amounts of knowledge, wisdom, and information if we can pick the right books or pick the right things to consume. And I would say that's the, the first step. So for me, it's kind of a process of identifying where do I not know stuff in, which is everywhere. No one knows everything about a particular field, but saying, here's an area where I don't know everything and I would like to know more and then finding some resources where I can learn more about that thing and then apply that learning to see if it's really true for me, right? Because information always has bias to it. And because of that information bias, there is no truth or like when you brought up facts, facts are not always facts, right? They might be facts even 99.9% .9 of the time, but there's a 0.1% and with the amount of people there are on the planet, you might be a part of that 0.1%. And it's really important to evaluate those things when addressing any type of conflict or issues. That's so invaluable for our listeners to hear because I try hard not to be biased. I try hard not to put the mom hat on and be like, oh, it's all the kids. And I try hard not to be all the kids because the parents do have a lot of valuable you know, expertise. And, and by the way, no shame to your parents whatsoever. I mean, it must have been devastating for two highly academic, focused academically on, on their careers and working to have their oldest daughter drop out of college. Like there's a space for that. It's not saying yours is different or yours is less or anything else, but definitely, I mean, that would be for such highly focused people on academia, that would be a really, that would be hard. Yeah. And I think one thing that can address that issue in terms of how can parents and children relate to each other more is growing up, a lot of kids don't see their parents as people. Mm -hmm. They see them as parents, yeah. right? And there's this mythical perfection to being a parent. Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things that might have helped me bridge that gap better with, with my mother is if she had gone, hey, it, when I, let's say I yelled at her for something, mom, you suck, right? Like whatever that is, where she went, 
I, I hear that you're feeling, right? Like acknowledging feelings, I think is always a first step in any conversation that you want to create where the other person's open to actually talking with you. So, hey, Mayan, I hear that you're really upset right now and I completely understand why you're upset, but I'd like to talk to you about my perspective. And sometimes, Mayan, I feel like you don't see that I'm a human being too that has real emotions. I'm not a perfect person. And just like you feel certain ways sometimes, I feel certain ways sometimes too. And then if she shared a story, because it's one thing to say that, it's another thing to provide evidence for it, right? So if she went, you know, sometimes I also struggle with feeling really angry. Like I can see your feeling right now. Here's an example, blah, 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 blah. And then out of that example, either having another example that shows here's a better way to do it or saying, you know, and here's the negative things that happened from that that taught me this is a better way to approach it. And I'm not telling you how to behave or what to do, but I want you to think about if you were in my shoes and I was yelling at you right now, how would you feel about that? Right. I'll remind you of this when you have a 13-year-old screaming in your face. Okay, I'll be like, hey, call me. I'm going to play this all over for you again. Because <laughs> it's. But I think that's the natural way that parents do communicate and one of the things I could reflect on really strongly is that sarcasm is a terrible, terrible tool for making people feel safe and comfortable. And it's a defense mechanism. And it's one of the reasons that in my content creation with my brand, even though naturally I am very – like I am just like my mother. Right. I want to make a sarcastic comment when you say something stupid or when yeah. – you know, like that is my go-to kind of – like little poking prod where I would love to poke you a little bit sometimes. But I am very, very cautious not to post sarcasm in almost any of my content because I realize the effect, it kills the effectiveness of a post in the direction I am trying to be effective, which is getting people to connect and communicate. And the second you start adding sarcasm into the conversation, I feel like, great, so this is a joke to you. You just invalidated everything that I told you I felt because you're going to go this direction. I'm trying to have a real conversation. So I think that's another thing to be aware of are what are those elements that maybe sometimes we go to because maybe they are a natural part of our personality or it's a way that we have kind of a defense mechanism that are really detrimental to the outcome that you're trying to achieve with that conversation. And you know, putting in effort to either identify when it happens, because I think that's how it starts. It's very hard to just stop doing something or saying things that you're used to saying, but making the effort to say, oh, you know, I just said that, but I, I want to take that back. I realized I was just in saying it like, I realized I was just sarcastic. I think that I did that because I'm starting to feel uncomfortable in this conversation, but I do want to keep talking about this and please continue. I, I didn't mean that. Can recreate that safety. So I think the sarcasm thing is so, so, so huge. And that's something I myself have worked on because it's it's just an innate part of my personality. I will tell you this. I will say this. And, and again, feel free to interview my kids. When I stop being sarcastic with them, because I'm, I'm sarcastic in kindness. Like I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait till you're old enough to have that decision for yourself. I will be here to support you. And, and they know I'm having some levity, okay? But they also know that I'm being really serious and I'm, I'm at my breaking point because I've tried every avenue of kindness. So I've tried a relatable story or I've tried to say, hey, look, I understand that you almost just knocked the door off the hinges by slamming it, and that's a real emotion. Let's take some time and let's catch our breath and let's reconvene, okay? Like, so every time I've 
thrown out these lifelines and like, hey, you need a little bit of space and I recognize that. It's so interesting that you say that because they start feeling uncomfortable. And until like I have I have a daughter who has major anxiety, okay? If I'm trying to do what you said, I'm I'm truly I mean, my aunt, I'm tr- I'm tr- I'm trying so much. I'm like okay, let's connect. Like, I'm like, it seems like things are really bad. Like I'm, like I'm having this conversation, walk me through this. And I'm really engaged, like no phone. I'm not being sarcastic until I'm sarcastic. She doesn't really, she just like, thanks mom. You know, thanks mom. But when I start being sarcastic, when I'm like, you know, I'm not sure ice cream's going to cut this. Like, you know, we haven't, and then they'll start laughing. Then they'll start being and and I always do I will tell you and you are so right this is a learned behavior cuz innately I'm very sarcastic okay but I always come back with a full circle and go you know I realize I put a bunch of levity in that but just so you know I'm not taking this conversation any less seriously I just know you really needed to laugh and I know that you needed to blah 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 because at a younger age you are totally right I would negate people left and right by being sarcastic People would say, oh, my God, you're so pretty. And I'd be like, oh, ha, 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 you must need to get your eyes checked. But you're right. I wasn't – I was like, oh, God, don't notice me. Don't look at me. Don't talk. Like, right. I was so, like, uncomfortable in my own skin. And I had to practice. And I'm telling you, it took years to sit with a compliment or for somebody to go look at me in the eye and they go, they go, Thank you so much for helping me. I really appreciate. I was like squirming and going, oh my God, get me out of this situation. I do want, and I'd be like, oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. No problem at all. Yeah, anybody would do that. Like, and I, you would get like, and it takes a lot of practice. And I so appreciate you bringing that up, which is a major perfect segue into going into TikTok and how incredibly successful you are and how mad my son is, that I don't have an account, and how my daughter told me, now that you've had Mayan on your show, you have to get on TikTok. So that's all, that is so the opposite of most kids when, when I'm talking to parents. Yeah. They go, Mom, no, don't get on TikTok, right? Like cringe effect. Yeah. But that's so cool that your kids are encouraging you. I love that. My kids literally, like, I mean, my husband and I joke about this all the time. We were young. I mean, I was 22 when I had my oldest, okay? And, and he was 23 when our oldest came. So I think it's hysterical because we, I mean, we fight a lot. Our kids and I fight a lot. Yep. They're very opinionated. They're amazing kids. Um, they're very well-rounded. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they'll be like, can I have a party? And I'm like, yeah, let me see where dad and I can go. And they're like, no, we want you here. They want us every traveling place they go, every party that they have, they want us there. So that kind of makes me a little bit happy that we've done maybe one or two things maybe right, you know, yet to be told, but we'll see. Yep. (laughs) So let's talk about TikTok. I want to talk about, before we go, I want to talk about TikTok. I want to talk about the success there. And I want to talk about what gave you the idea. And then I want to kind of flip it into the amazing leadership skills that you have and the ability and the gift that you have to stay and almost i don't i don't want to say demand because i feel like that's too strong of a word but almost demand authenticity from your listeners and from your followers and i think that that is so incredibly warm and inviting so just talk to me about the journey with tiktok and let's just walk through that yeah so i first heard about tiktok as many people did from gary v on his podcast which i used to listen to very, very consistently. 
And at first I was like, whatever, I don't need another social media app, right? And I was crushing it with my glass blowing business on Instagram. Like we were doing very, very well in, in sales. But then Instagram changed up its algorithm 2018 and our sales dropped really quickly, really dramatically because we, about 50% of our business regularly was from new customers who'd never heard of us before. And then 50% was like return customers. So when it changed the algorithm, boom, there went all of the new customers because our posts just weren't getting shown anymore to new people the same way that they had been consistently for three years. I tried to kind of fix it and try all these different strategies to get it going again and be able to stay focused on Instagram, but they just weren't working. And so after about four months, I said, I'm going to try other platforms. I'm going to try doing a Patreon account and seeing if that gets more attention because at the time Patreon had a little bit more buzz around it. I said, you know, I'm going to try Twitter and see if that's great for generating customers and sales. I'm going to try, oh, TikTok, this other thing might as well. I'm trying new things anyways. I was just in the, the trying things mood, right? And so I hopped on, had no idea what was happening. I was like, what are these videos? I didn't select anything. Why is it showing me stuff? Figured out, okay, here's how you post a video. And kind of my determination was, I'm just going to figure out how to use this new social media app. And to me, that felt like a lot, like a big accomplishment. I hadn't you know, ventured to learn something that complicated and new in a while. And I figured out how to post a video. So now I was like, okay, what am I going to post about? I said, okay, same stuff that I'm going to post on Instagram. Oh, soft glass blowing videos. Cause that's generally much more sculptural. Soft glass is where you stick it in the furnace and you pull it out and it's still molten and pliable. So I was just posting some videos and two weeks into just opening an account, one video, my phone started blowing up, you know, 99 plus notifications. I went, what is going on? And I opened it. It's just like comment after comment after comment on this video that says, SK, 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 Visco girls have entered the chat. I was like, what? What is a Visco girl? What is going on here? And it was getting, you know, thousands of new views every second. Every time I refreshed it, there was another thousand views on the video. Like literally refresh another thousand views on the video. I went, I don't know what's happening, but it's very exciting and I love it. And so I started doing some research, like what's a Visco girl? And I found out, oh, it's on TikTok. There's like, you know, this girl, kind of like a Hollister girl. She wears a ponytail and has a hydro flask and wears scrunchies. I was like, oh my God, TikTok has subculture? Like, whoa, now I'm really interested in this platform because not a lot of platforms have like cults or subculture, these like sub communities that are making up their own languages and words, right? I was like, that's big. And it was, it was so, it was thousands of people commenting about the same thing. So I was like, this is crazy. And I started just really being interested in how TikTok worked and how people were working with the app. Like why, why are people so crazy over this video? Like what is it that's so dynamic about this video and this platform or the what's happening here? So I started coming up with hypotheses. I kind of reverted back to scientific method, which is my go-to way to evaluate life and things that I don't know. And I went, what are some possibilities? Maybe it's because I touched on this Visco girl thing and that's like driving the conversation and the virality. Maybe it's because the video was of a glass turtle. The turtle with the straw up its nose, like that was kind of still a hot topic. The app could tell that my video related to mass interest in a particular area. And then I also saw that there was some commenting back and forth in the video where people were going, oh my God, they're killing a, a real turtle because it was very realistic yeah, looking. Right. looking. And they were attaching a fin to it and like had this big blowtorch, right? And so if you thought that was a real turtle, that was like 
a horrible video that you were watching. And then other people were commenting, responding to those comments. No, no, no. This is just glass blowing. And they'd be like, no way. This is a real turtle. So I went, oh, maybe argument or conversation in the comments. Maybe that drives virality. So then I just started coming up with a hypothesis that I could test in a video. I said, okay, I'm going to make this video in this way to see if this thing still holds true. And kind of the way that it rings in science is just because it works once doesn't mean it's proof of anything. You have to test it a thousand times. And if it's true all a thousand times, then maybe you can say that it's true, but always still leave room for like, maybe it's not true. Right. Right. That's amazing. Okay. So let's get deep for just a second. Okay. How many followers do you have on TikTok? I'm about to cross the 2.4 million mark. 2.4. How many times a week do you post videos? Oh, every single day, sometimes multiple times per day. Okay. Are the comments positive? Are they negative? Are they some of both? Like, what are the percentages? I have really positive fans and subscribers to my brand, let's say. I'm not selling anything on my TikTok. They are buying into my brand, so to speak. And I think that's by nature of my brand being positive. So some people are going to have a lot of negative commenters because their page is talking about negative things or bringing to light controversial things. But also I would say other people have had the opposite experience. So I, for my experience, TikTok has been an overwhelmingly positive place. For other people, it's been an overwhelmingly negative place to the point where they've had to delete TikTok because they couldn't handle all of the, the hate that was on their page. So I would say, what does that look like? Typically, and this is unfortunate, but also good to bring to light, and I think TikTok's even a way that people are dealing with some of this hate that's happening in person, but it's giving them an outlet that they can much more reasonably process online, where people with disabilities or something that, if you think back to the schoolyard, middle school, elementary school that someone would get made fun of for, right, having a lisp or talking differently or having some type of, yeah, and it's very sad and unfortunate, but you'll also see that person like learning how to cope and deal with right. that Advocate. through their TikTok videos. Yeah. Because even though there's going to, on some creators' content, be a lot of hate, always there will still be a supportive group that is not only supporting the person, but fighting the haters for them and going, hey, it's really messed up how everyone's talking about this. I think this person's dope. Right? And so even if you have a ton of hate, if you have even one of those comments, it, it it really does help a little where you go, well, maybe all those people suck and this person's right. And maybe I am dope. And these people struggle with their own issues that they're trying to put on me. And so I think even on accounts where they're getting a lot of hate, it still seems pretty positive to me that they're able to deal with that. They have a support system and support community even within the platform. And thick skin really is something that takes practice to develop unfortunately right like I've heard some people say they're born with thick skin I can't say that that's true of me or that that is true of anyone because for me it's been developed and it's been developed by dealing with and facing the ugly side of human beings absolutely absolutely okay so how much time a day do you spend on TikTok I spend I would say 15 to 30 minutes creating content okay and then probably another hour to two hours consuming content. Okay. Talk to me about your job. So have you figured out a way to monetize this to show everyone else how to become this famous TikTok person? All the ways. Yeah. You're like everything. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think, again, that's by my nature. 
what I am most motivated to do is explore and experiment. Like to me, I find higher value in finding out something new than in succeeding at something. Now, luckily, finding out something new is very often attached to succeeding at something, right? Like the more you know, the better a chance you have. But it also means that I fail a lot in the way that other people conventionally think about failure. So traditionally, content creators think about the success of a video based on the number of views. I don't. I think a video is successful if I learn something new about how people think, behave, or operate, or about how my content specifically can connect with or provide value to other people. So that is why you are a true leader. So you're not doing it for yourself. You're doing it to possibly learn how to do things for other people, how to bring people together, how to connect people, how to build bridges. It's not about the likes and not so much. I mean, I understand that you always want to go viral and I understand you always want people consuming your content, but it's really about if you help that one person, what did I learn and how did I show up for others? And I think that that right there is the true depiction of of a leader and and a natural born leader. Well, you're right. You're not born with it necessarily, but I think you also learn how to use it by dealing with so many different personalities and circumstances. And Mayan, you always flip it. Like you flip the failure into this is what I learned. This is how I gain knowledge. This is how I can help others. And so that to me, when my team brought me your story and said, what do you think? I was like, it's literally a perfect person and a perfect story to talk about. I mean, yeah, privilege, great, but you flipped so many obstacles into opportunities. And now doing this with such 2.4 million followers, tell me how you monetize it. Yeah. So one of the ways is through brand deals. So for example, I'm working on a brand promotion. And when I say brand deal, that means a video. Okay. I'm What am I doing? I'm making a video. Typically, it, it's a one video deal. Sometimes you'll negotiate for multiple videos on a contract, but I'm doing a video for wish.com. Mm. They're one of the, the big advertisers that is consistent with using TikTok influencers. And they're paying me $2,000 to do a single video with a link in my bio. So that's pretty significant amount of money to make for, you know, I'll probably spend an hour, maybe two, maybe three on, on making that video. So that's, that's pretty good. Also, it establishes more credibility for me as an influencer, right? The more big brands that you work with, the more attractive you look to other big brands. So that's, that's all good. Another way is through consulting. And I love consulting because one, I get great feedback that lets me know I'm delivering the value that I'm, I'm looking to deliver. But I think I have some pretty unique perspectives or ways that I look at TikTok that I've seen are really helpful to people, not just on TikTok, but they're able to apply the concepts I'm teaching through TikTok as the vehicle of education, but are universal concepts that apply to everything that they're doing with their business or or their life in general. So being able to deliver the true value that I have, which is how do you understand people? How do you learn to understand people better? How do you communicate with them? And how do you provide them value? Well, TikTok is like an excellent teaching tool for teaching all of those different concepts. So that's another way. I would say a third way is through leveraging it to create other opportunities. How that works is people apply one thing about a person to all the areas of their life. So if I hear that you are successful in one area, I naturally believe that you will be successful in another area because our skills transfer, Mm -hmm. right? If I am good at TikTok because I am creative at coming up with ideas, 
Well, I can apply that creativity of coming up with ideas to many different areas and opportunities that allow me to monetize. So how that's translated is in equity ownership of multiple different startups, which is huge. I feel like I'm playing a different game than than most creators where they're like, oh my God, I just got a deal for, for $5,000. And I'm like, that's great. I just got a piece of a company that might be worth, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars in a couple years. Yeah. So that's one way that's much more long-term, but could be much more substantial in terms of like financial upside. And then again, additional leverage. Once you prove that you can successfully grow and start one startup, they all start flocking to you and saying, hey, we want you to be a part of this startup because you've been successful at building up this company from zero, at having a successful exit. And so it's really about just stacking all of these areas of leverage. So TikTok is proof to people that I can build an audience. TikTok is proof and evidence to people that I can create content that tells a story or speaks a message well. And, and this, I think, is important for people to hear when it comes to content is when brand deals are coming to look at my page, the videos that are the most viral are all glass blowing related. So they don't necessarily apply to a brand going, oh, she could do a video about our product like she did this video, right? There's like almost no connection there. But I have, I would say half of my content is in other areas that I am passionate about and want to share, you know, content around. So I do some cute videos of my dogs. People really love those. I do some videos like when I go out to small businesses, I love supporting small businesses. So I'll create like a little video of, we just went to Kelly's Cannolis. This is a real place that I just went to the other day. Great name, right? Kelly's Cannolis, so great. And it's like this little pink shack on the side of this busy street, Aurora. And Kelly came over to Seattle and she decided to make the first New York style authentic cannoli stop. Right, like that's a great story, little mini episode where I have some cannoli visuals to share on my TikTok. Those videos, I haven't built up the skill yet to have those ones go viral, right? Like millions of mm -hmm. views. So a lot of times those ones will do, let's say, 10,000 to 50,000 views, which still very significant in numbers, but is not if you looked at my page and just looked at the most viral ones, that's not 50 million views or 10 million right. views, right? Yet those are the videos that convince brands they want to work with me because they go, we liked your content quality. We liked your content messaging. They care more about that. Almost every business is going to care more about what the video actually is and how they perceive it than the numbers. So if you can create good content that people go, wow, that was a good video, it doesn't matter nearly as much how many views you have. Right. So first of all, I am so impressed with you. I am so impressed with your ability to think so strategically in so many different aspects of your life. So like you're you're such an interesting person, but then you have all of the EQ. So you have the empathy and the care and the connection and you have the whole community thing and you and you're constantly wanting to learn. Like you're not just like, yeah, Steph, I got it. I'm an influencer on TikTok. You're like, right. what's next? What's next? What's next? I constantly want more. And you're so humble and so caring and so smart. I've learned an incredible amount in just the short time that we've spent together. And I'm sad that our, our time has come to an end. I'd love to have you back. Answer one Absolutely. more answer one more thing for me. What are you looking for? So like as people come and 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 see us and hear our podcast, what brands or what people are you looking to help to push your business further? What are you actually like what would excite you? What's like the best brand that could call you and go, hey Mayan, let's do a deal? Yeah, you know, it's brands that have a mission. 
And I've really, as I've started connecting with brands that stand for something, I've been getting more and more excited about doing branded content because coming from a creative or a creator perspective, like you don't really get excited about promoting a product. It doesn't tap into your creativity as much. It's not really speaking to something that you feel probably as like, I'm not super, super passionate about headphones, right? Like I, I couldn't care that much, but I am really, really passionate about, let's say, making things more accessible to people who are hearing impaired. So if a headphone company had that as part of their business model or their messaging or mission, and then I could go, wow, I can create a video for a brand to add credibility to myself that I'm going to make money from, and I get to speak about something I want to speak about anyways, and I care about, ding, 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 like that win, win, win situation, right? So any brand that has that type of mission, and I don't even know what all of those are. So when you say a specific brand, I would say I hadn't prepared, if I <laughs> had time to prepare for that question, I would come up with one because I know that it's good to, to be specific, but really just any brand that feels like we are more than just a business. Right. We're more, we're here for more than just money. We actually want to accomplish greater good. We want to connect and we want to bridge. I just was one of the contributors in standing O for, and and I know you were as well. Yes. Yes. And so like, I, I felt like that mission when he called me and said, Stephanie, this is what we're doing. Constantly, constantly giving back. Scott is so incredible and impactful at that. And those are the people that are really starting to come out and say, Hey Steph, can we be on the podcast? This is what we overcame. I'm connected to the person and their mission, not so much their name. So we've said no to a lot of very, very big names because it just didn't feel like it was, I don't care about the promotion. I care about really how, who it's going to help and who's going to really kind of latch onto it, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in, again, in the long run, that is the strategy that wins a lot more of the time and in a lot greater fashion because that it's a long game. It's a marathon. Absolutely. And to maintain energy through, it's not just, can you complete the marathon? It's, can you be more energized at the end of the marathon than you were at the beginning of it? And that's one of the things that I've really realized. I'm sure you can relate to this too, is a lot of times it does come down to a game of how much energy you have. Mm -hmm. Cause none of us can perform very well when we're super low energy. And so thinking about and reflecting what are the activities that actually give you more energy, even though you spent energy doing the activity, and which are the activities that just suck all of the energy out of you can allow you to construct and rearrange your life in a way that fuels and supports you as you're going through it till it becomes a point where I'm at, and I'm sure you are too, where you can't stop doing what you're doing. No. Like it is the lifeblood of, exactly. of your experience of life that you, these things fuel you. And if you took away all of your fuel, what, you know, you'd be feeling pretty bad. (laughs) That's incredible. Mayan, I can't thank you enough for you spending your time here with us and for you going through, we had so much more to cover, but I just was so interested in all the psychology and the background and, and just what you overcame and, and what an incredible, impeccable leader you are. How do our listeners find you? How, talk to me about your social handles and, and where can they find you if they want to learn more about you? Absolutely. So if you're looking to get in touch with me, the best way is either through LinkedIn and you can just search my name or I'm sure Stephanie will have the the link available. Send me a message when you, you know, send that connection request. That way I know that you heard me on the podcast and, and we can have a little bit of a deeper conversation right away. 
And another place to connect with me is through my website, which is www.myongordonmedia.com. And again, I'm sure she'll have the link. And then I would say if you want to check out my TikTok channel, which is very interesting, usually people get pretty hooked into it with the glass blowing content. That's World of Glass on TikTok. And lastly, on Instagram, it's Myon Gordon Media. Awesome. Thank you so much for this. And I really appreciate all your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit that subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. Also, head over to YouTube to check out all of the live videos on our new podcast channel, Spin It with Stephanie Malik. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.